Greetings, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of Gomology. I'm Nick Johannesson, your host, and uh, clearly autumn has arrived here in suburban Norway. I've got rain pattering on the roof, leaves on the path outside. What better time to listen to a nice conversation, right? As I mentioned last week, I have set up a Patreon now for those who would like to support the podcast. This is totally optional. All the current 128 episodes are available and free for all to listen to. I haven't landed on what extras the Patreon might give access to, so please drop me a note if you have ideas. Maybe a gomology forum, a newsletter, or, I don't know, a video greeting on your birthday? I'm all ears. Okay, let's get cracking on this week's episode. Off to Guernsey we go! Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today I am sitting in my attic uh, office in suburbs of Norway, and it's a really, really hot day. And on a really hot summer day, what does your mind turn to? Thick woolly jumpers. So my guest today is Rachel. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, I'd be delighted. Um, I'm Rachel Lene, and I'm the owner of Le Tricotar, and we make possibly the best Guernseys in the world. We still use very traditional manufacturing techniques. We're the only company that employs hand knitters around the island. And I'm a Guernsey girl at heart. And interestingly, I used to be allergic to wool and now I'm not. And my surname is Lene, which is Guernsey French for the eldest. But if you knocked the accent off the E, it's French for wool. So I think this path was meant to be now, you mentioned you make Guernseys. Now, for me, Guernsey is an island, which I am not 100% sure of exactly where it is, but it's somewhere between Britain and France, I think. Also a tax haven, yeah, that's but that's probably not actually... relevant mm. in this matter. <laughs> um, can you tell me a bit about the island Guernsey and what a Guernsey is? Sure. So Guernsey is part of a group of islands, Jersey, Guernsey, Oldney, Sark, Herm. There's some smaller islands as well off off um, off the coast too, but those are the main ones. And we're actually closer to St. Malo than we are to in France than we are to the UK. Um, we are um, a crown dependency, so we're actually owned by whoever is sitting on the throne in the UK. So right now we are owned by King Charles, um, and so we it, we kind of fit into our own little realm. Um, Guernsey is the second largest of the islands. Jersey's larger. <clears throat> we have fierce rivalry between the two islands. But the Guernsey, small g, which is made on the island of Guernsey, large g, is what we would consider the indigenous fisherman's jumper of all of the Channel Islands. And I know that people sometimes pronounce them Gansies, but that's a late development. They were always originally Guernseys from Guernsey, and we still call them Guernseys on the island. No one would call them Gansies here. But as the fishing folk went further afield, that name kind of was, was um, I suppose, was kind of latched onto by other fishing communities, and it became a Gansey. Or so they say. There's a lot of debate about that out there. But we still call them Guernseys, but with a small g. That's how we differentiate. I have to admit, I was probably adding my bit to the confusion there, because whenever I heard Guernsey, I thought, oh, that's a that's a word they picked up from Norway, Norway because a woolly jumper in Norway is a Gensed. 
but, but I, exactly. But I realised it's mean, gone the other way. That the Norwegians it could possibly. We'd have to. We'd have to really look into the dates because I've heard that as well. And obviously, the Scandinavian invaders came down to France, and then they came across to the Channel Islands, and then they went on to the UK. So they could quite easily have brought that word down. But then I, we'd need to look into the etymological etymology of where guernsey got it named from i suppose the island so well, because bit, we are it, yeah everyone knows that the vikings were mainly known for their natty knitwear <laughs> and apparently my family is originally from scandinavia as well we're one of the founding families in guernsey which we only found out in the millennium when they were doing you know we were, everyone was looking through their archives and apparently Lene is one of the founding families in Guernsey, which you know is pleasing, but I certainly don't go around with any airs or braces, that's for sure. You're not Lady of the Island. <laughs> well, if you say so. <laughs> so what makes a Guernsey a Guernsey and what differs it from every other knitted wool sweater on the planet? Okay, there's quite a lot to get into here, but I will try and keep it short because I could talk about them for a long time. They um, they have certain patterns on the shoulder and around the hem and the neck, the way the neck is knitted, that identifies that traditional Guernsey pattern. They're not highly patterned at all. They're not like a fair isle. And there is, you know, this story that every family knitted their own pattern. And I actually think that's probably more likely when you go up to a Northumberland Guernsey where they have a lot more moss stitch patterns going along the chest. The traditional Guernsey is navy. It's made with worsted wool. It has two different types of stitching on the shoulder, either side of the shoulder seam. One is a rib stitch that looks like a ladder, a vertical ladder, and they were supposed to indicate the ladder up the seawall when the fishing men came in from their fish and they had to climb up the ladder up the outside so you have a ladder stitch that goes up one side and it's, it's a rib stitch and it looks like a ladder. And on the other side, you have what's called a garter stitch and that would indicate little choppy waves. You have more garter stitch around the hem at the bottom, but it's finer. And there's a bit of a dispute as to whether that would represent when we have an enormous tide in Guernsey, some of the largest tides in the world, when the water goes out, you're left with that really firm, compacted sand. And some people say that that garter stitch around the hem represents the sand. And then just above that, there is um, a horizontal rib stitch, which is supposed to show the nets that are hanging over the side of the boats. So they have all these different pieces that you add up though they've taken little bits from the fishing community including there's a seam a shoulder seam that's supposed to be a rope and along the very very bottom of the hem i you know i personally the technical name it's, it's like the knotting off they would have been little cork floats representative little cork floats around the um fishing nets so when you add with the but the front panel and the back panel are completely plain there's no augmentation or interest. The, the detail is just around the shoulder and around the hem. And then we make our still as workwear pieces. So we incorporate a little triangular neck gusset so that when you're pulling them on, you're not fighting to pull them over your head. There's movement either side of the neck. And then there's also a diamond 
armpit gusset under the arm. Now, not all Guernseys will do that, but because we still produce ours with very, very old patterns, and we produce them for our farming and fishing community. We still have fishermen and farmers coming to buy little Kitai Guernseys because they know that we pack more stitches into our Guernseys than, than others that are made because we still make them on very old vintage flatbed machines that have a card pattern. It's, they're not computers. So they're very mechanical, beautiful vintage flatbed machines, which when they break, they're kind of step one to four to fix. But if you have one of these very modern computer machines, and we have invested in a secondhand one of those, if they break, it takes us about two weeks to figure out what's gone wrong with it sometimes. So we love the fact that with our very old, very robust machines, we can actually it's knit a lot more stitches into our Guernseys, which make them super windproof and rainproof. And we only use worsted wool and there's a little bit of history to that in that it, we've only ever made them out of worsted wool because it, it's a medium weight wool and it's the way it's spun makes it really strong. And also um, it's, it, it, it's just really well known for its qualities of not snapping and for keeping the wind out. And way back when, I think it probably would have been well, way back when, it's all relative really but at the beginning of the 80s wool prices dropped massively except for worsted wool because that's the wool that's used to make carpets so that will give you an indication of how robust it is so you're not pulling on a fine merino soft jumper when you're putting on a guernsey it's like you're pulling on your armor it they they are they do feel quite solid they do feel quite tight they you know some people will say they're a bit itchy. I don't think they're, I remember them being way itchy as a child, but then that just might be because <laughs> I was a child at the time and fussy. Whereas now I love the fact that I don't have to wear a coat. You know, if I want to go and do walk the dog, I can just put on my Guernsey and off I go and it's warm. And if it's raining a little bit, it's fine. Because something I didn't realize until I bought the business, until I knew a little bit more about the qualities of wool, that Wool can absorb up to 25% of its weight before it starts feeling damp. And that's why it's just the most magic material. So you can go for a walk and it might be raining a bit and you'll be absolutely fine by the time you get back. So, you know, so I don't know, to answer your question, what makes a Guernsey a Guernsey? Has, the traditional color is navy. It has these very recognizable shoulder and hem patterns, but, the beauty of it is that you can wear it front to back. There's no front, there's no back. We always put our labels in the side seam so that you can flip it front to back because it extends the wear. And there's stories of you know, fisher, fishermen coming back and they'll have been leaning over the side of the boat all day and pulling up and gutting fish. And then they'll go to a pub in the evening and they'll just switch their guernsey around and they'll have their nice clean side to go to the <laughs> pub in the evening. Um, oh. So I don't know, is that enough of an explanation? I hope so. Yeah, I was just sort of wondering, um, because a proper Guernsey surely must be made on the island of Guernsey. Well, we would like to think so. And, you know, I have started, I have looked into making a Guernsey could only be called a Guernsey if it was made on the island of Guernsey. And I mean, you know, we, we've had a knitting industry on this island for hundreds and hundreds of years and you know we still use our hand knitters we 
you know, we, they each have their bag of knitting and we drive around once a week and we give them their Guernseys and they do all the shoulder and the neck for us. And then we go back the next week and we collect them. And they also do our gussets for us, our underarm gussets. Um, but we don't hand knit an entire Guernsey anymore because that takes months because they're very, very small needles that we use. There's a particular type of, it's quite your hands when you knit a Guernsey, they have to be very, very close together. It's not, you know, when you see, you know, you haven't got these giant knitting needles clacking away. You probably wouldn't be able to hear someone knitting a Guernsey because they're tiny little needle, um, needle knitting needles. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to say that a Guernsey should be made on Guernsey, but I do know people have made Guernsey style jumpers, not on the island. Yeah, because you but see the same with... They're not the real deal. <laughs> you see the same with Fair Isle. I mean, how many people live mm. on the Fair Isle Island? It's about 50 people, tops. Mm -hmm. And if they were all hard at work knitting, they could never produce more than a few <laughs> jumpers a year, but all no. Fair Isle style sweaters. Yeah. I mean, I would like us to get, you know, the recognition like Harris Tweed has, where you can only call it Harris Tweed if it's been made in your home and it's been done with like manual labour. And I mean, we don't knit them all from start to finish from scratch. We just we have elements. But, you know, we, between the staff that I inherited when I got involved in the business, between them, they've got over 400 years of experience. I mean, some of them, it's been their only job their entire life. And that is a concern for me a little bit in terms of succession planning, because like you mentioned in the intro that Guernsey's a tax haven and we have a lot of banking on the island and they can pay much better salaries than I would ever be able to. But I have been really fortunate to recruit some younger people who are from Guernsey, then be super passionate about their island. There is a real loyalty to the island and a belief in our heritage. And so I have managed to recruit some young, very passionate people who want to see us maintain the knitting industry. I'd like to see knitting taught in schools again. It used to be taught to the women folk, but we have had a few male knitters on occasion, but majority is women. And yet back in the day, I suppose, when we had hundreds of knitters working for Le Tricoteur, when we were making 100,000 garments a year, which we absolutely aren't right now, um, it would have been, it was a very different time where women were expected to be homemakers and it, was, it used to be called pin money. They'd make their pin money by doing a bit of knitting for us. Whereas now we actually pay a living wage. We pay enough to people that they could, if they wanted to, you know, make it their job if they wanted to. Um, we have some people doing 25 a week. We have some people doing three. We have some people who are in their 90s and we have some people in their 20s. And um, you have to have a certain level of skill, but we have a master knitter called Carol and she will teach them and make sure that they know what they're doing before they're let loose on any bags of knitting. But we're flexible, you know, we just want to keep it going. So if you want to do three a week, that's fine. If you want to do 25, that's fine. And we try and manage the supply and demand accordingly. So um, we've had to, we've had always had a very strong relationship with the Far East in terms of selling to Japan and South Korea. We've actually had to make the decision not to sell as much to them if we want to be able to offer it to a few more people closer to home because we have a quota 
that we can make per year and that's it and it's based on the number of knitters that we have on the island the number of linkers and we can't just give them all of our stock every year because we've with the demand has risen and with the attention to going back to 100% wool garments we have been approached by lots and lots and lots of stockists and it's actually only this winter for the first time I think in 25 years I will be approaching like I've kind of gone through all the approaches and decided oh I think these people marry with our beliefs and the way we believe how we want to do business and so for the first time in 25 years I'm actually going to look at new stockists which is exciting for the brand but we've had to curb how much we sell because if you know if we could make a hundred thousand we'd probably sell a hundred thousand to Japan but we if we're making hand knitted ones we just they we, we don't have that productivity inbuilt so so I've had to make that commercial decision which I'm sure some people would think would be crazy but I want to spread it around a little bit more and have you know have people be introduced to the product a little bit closer to home some people in your position will probably be thinking how can i get someone in latvia to make all my sweaters for me and uh, then i could sell two hundred thousand a year yeah i know but the point is i do it is something it comes back to what you mentioned earlier i really feel they have to be made in guernsey and if we ever really did have a production issue the furthest I'd go would be to France because you've kind of sat between those two countries in history, either the UK or France. And I kind of don't want to go to the UK. I'd rather stick closer to, to, to where we are geographically as well. Some people, some people in Guernsey believe we should be French still and we shouldn't have remained with the UK when the war, the wars back in the day were going backwards and forwards. I mean, we were just being passed around as this kind of extra little, fiefdom i suppose um so you know maybe there will be a time that we make some in northern france but for now we've got enough business to keep us going just on the island and that sits very happily with me that we will just carry on making guernseys and guernsey and we were the original commercial manufacturers of the guernsey on the island before le tricoteur there it would have been your granny or your aunt or there were a couple of ladies that would knit them to order and for a while, they were actually part of school uniform here. So you had to put your order in about six months before school started. And you'd all, your mum would always insist that it had to be a bit larger than you needed because, you know, they have to last a long time. They're not cheap to make even back then because of the amount of wool that you knit into them. There's often a one and a half kilos of wool of yarn in per, per garment. And, um, and so you'd see all these old pictures of, boys going off to school with enormously long arms and down to their knees and um and they last that little <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um so we yeah so we but it was my cousin who set up the company and he went on a university trip sponsored by he was at school in ireland in dublin and he went on a school or university trip to america and he had so many comments about this traditional woolen Guernsey that he was wearing that he decided there's some you know people are really interested in knowing about this iconic garment from my little island I'm going to make them and export them and that's how it all started back in the 60s but before then yeah it would have been your a relative who would have made you one or there are a couple of ladies who would have 
had small commercial enterprises making them, but there'd be a group of maybe three knitters who worked with them. Whereas, you know, Robert, or his name was Mac, um, started making them. And I mean, when he first started, they was very small numbers, but he grew the business to a point where they were making a hundred thousand a year, but they had over 400 knitters on the island at the time. And now, and they had, I think they had three vans going round, dropping the knitting off. They had a purpose-built kind of factory made to put all them, the old flatbed machines in. And then it all kind of went a bit pop in the 80s because A, the I mentioned earlier, wool dropped in price, except for worsted wool, which they were always traditionally being made with. So we were slightly priced out of the market against other woolen jumpers. And it was the emergence of polyester fleece from the Far East. Everybody switched to wanting to wear fleece because it was so lightweight. And the bottom just dropped out of the market. And um, and now we're seeing the reverse happening. So people don't want a plastic-based material. They'd like to go back to wool. They'd like to go back to something that has got a story behind it and a heritage and a history. And the design that we make is the same design that it's been for hundreds of years. We make ours still a little bit longer at the front and the back because we still sell to people who use them as workwear. So they need that length if they're leaning over something or leaning against something from behind. They want something to pull down over their bum to lean against, I don't know, if they're working. We have a lot of painted decorators, people who work outside, farmers, agricultural workers, gardeners. Um, stonemasons I think I mentioned that we had a lady said she had a, seven different Guernseys all from us and she's a she does thatch thatch so she does thatch roofs and she's out in all the elements and she needs to move her arms so she doesn't want to wear a coat or a wax jacket or a performance outerwear she just wants to wear a Guernsey because she can move best in it so ours are a little bit longer in the cuff as well because in winter you want to be able to cover your knuckles and then you can fold it up at another time. So when people try them on, they do kind of go, oh, it's a bit longer and it feels a bit, you know, it feels, it hasn't got that loose stitch that you have in a more of a high street garment. There's, you know, there's there's a little bit of stretch in it, but not a lot. And that the, the reason is for the weatherproofing. You know, we don't want the wind to get in and we don't want the rain to get in. But, you know, I'm not sticking. I to absolutely only making the traditional shape. I have introduced a wider cropped Guernsey, still made in the same way, but just moved the proportion slightly because I was having lots of ladies, especially younger ladies, now that we've got um, a younger audience interested, finding them not being particularly flattering. So they wanted to have something that was a bit more slouchy and so we've introduced that. So it still has the weatherproofing qualities, but it doesn't fit quite so tight to the body. It doesn't grip you around the hips. It's a much more slouchy feel. And every time we make them, we sell out. They sell out in a day. And because the, each one takes five weeks to make, you know, we might be doing 20 at a time going through the system. And we put them online, or they go in the shop, and they go just like that and our head technician's never seen anything like it he can't believe it I say like I just think we should make a hundred next time and now we're thinking about making them in different colors but so far they've just been the biggest hit ever 
just just tweaking the the kind of proportion slightly but our best seller without fail is a navy traditional guernsey in probably a size 44 inches we still use inches as our measurements and 44 inches is pretty standard for a man a male so we still sell more to men than women but that is there seems to be a bit of a change there um which is interesting because they are unisex (laughs) you 44 (laughs) you must be maybe you are (laughs) yeah um, I was sort of wondering when you'd get around to the design details required for that uh, fish gutting to pub uh, transition, <laughs> but uh, clearly that's sort of not a major thing these days. No, not so much. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, Japan has have, have pushed us to, to think about different colours, which is interesting. Um, we still sell all the traditional colours, starting from navy, we then sell like a loden green, which is that kind of military green, an indigo, which is a light blue, and a bright red is very popular. Um, but when we, with our work with Japan, they have asked us to make them some quite different colors that we possibly wouldn't have introduced. But then it's nice to see something have a slightly different element than, than the normal. And um, so we did introduce some more fashion colors when, when I got involved in the business and and they have done well but it's the traditional colors every time people just you know charcoal gray steel gray navy red um Aaron cream we introduced but I can see why they hadn't done it for a few years because it shows up any fault whatsoever so our seconds rail is a wash with Aaron because our QC lady is an absolute militant about they have to be perfect to be sold at full price. So if you did ever want to buy a second, you're pretty much guaranteed to find a cream one on the rail. They're very smart, but they do show the faults every single time. So uh, I'm not so much in love with Aaron anymore as I used to be. Maybe as a stripe, a navy and Aaron stripe, but not Aaron the, the, the stitch, but the colour that you'd see, you'd see in the traditional Aaron jumper in that cream colour, which apparently is the natural colour of the sheep as well. So we have a couple of colours where they are undyed. One is a brown, dark brown, um, and then the other cream, which is interesting because I had to like find out like what type of sheep we with our, our wool comes from. And um, we have one, and I'm going to have to look them up actually, but we have one called, what should we call it? It's a, it's, they're all actually, what is quite good is they are all byproducts of the meat industry as well. So I like the fact that our garment is 100% wool and will decompose in under a month. But also we're not using any materials that, you know, are being grown specifically to be used. So we are a byproduct. Our, our, our wool is a byproduct. Um, and I like the fact that we offer the two colours that don't need to be dyed as well. So if you want a 100% natural one, we've got it. I mean, we're going to do a little bit of an experiment. So I want to bury one. I want to see. I actually want to time how long it takes to decompose. So I'm teaming up with two other people on the island and we're all going <laughs> to ritualistically bury one of our Guernseys and then come back and prod it every couple of weeks and see see what happens because... I think it's really important to remind people that, you know, 
would like to have something that is not circular economy, but it's, you know, it goes back to the land from which it came. And eventually I'd absolutely love to have my own sheep on the island and make my own wool and spin my own wool and make them all within this five. I mean, this island is in parts it's only three miles wide or five miles wide. And to have one made completely 100 percent on the island would be is, is definitely one of my ambitions for the future, for sure. Maybe you can start uh, just sort of with a, a few sheep and make a sort of uh, premium edition, the Super Guernsey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, my office manager is, um, she's doing, she's, her and her husband and her kids, they've bought this little bungalow and he's a builder and he, they're making a family home. And I keep saying to her, come on, just put a couple of sheep in your garden, let's see what happens. And she's just like, no, Rachel, you know, I've got two children as it is, I don't need sheep to look after, but I might persuade her. If there's anybody out there on Guernsey who wants to help me, let me know. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic idea. I remember being so disappointed when I visited the Hebrides and was asking about the wool they used for the Harris Tweed because I noticed oh, yeah. blackface sheep and all this and I was thinking, wow, brilliant. But then it turns out they don't use the wool from those at all because that's all sent back to the mainland to be used for carpets because it's so uh, coarse. And then they yeah. bought the wool for the Tweed from the mainland. And I was thinking, oh, that's a shame. That's a missed story there. Oh, Otherwise you could have sort of followed followed your lamb from <laughs> from lamb to yeah so we have uh, yeah we we have a the suffolk sheep which i think everybody knows the one you think of it's got a cream body it's got little black like legs and a little black face and then we have the jacob sheep which is actually horned and it's a piebald sheep so it's dark brown and cream so you can get two types of wool off it and we sell that brown the brown um shade in the shop as well um you know, we actually sell it to Labour and Weight as well, which is the shop in in London. That they've been doing business with us for twenty three years. They're one of the first ever stockists, I think. Um, and they take that brown, which is um, I love the fact that it's natural because you can actually, if you if you hold it up and you look at it, you can see about seven different shades in it. And but the lady who QC, she says it's a nightmare teaching new people how to QC it because they're constantly trying to pick out the little white flecks but they're natural the white flex is supposed to be in it and people come back it took me over an hour to do one and she's like no you need to leave the white bits in those are actually part of the wool so that was quite funny um but i i mean i don't even knit i i, I can't believe that you know i work with the chicotel i own the chicotel and I, I don't even know how to knit but i'm definitely certainly going to give it a go at some point but it, I mean, the needles are so tiny that um, I think it'll take me a while I have to start somewhere. It's pretty basic. shameful indeed, but you could start with something small. I know. <laughs> I'll start with something small to see how we go. But the wool you get, do you have any sort of idea where that originates from? I mean, you're not buying from a specific yeah, farm or anything? We, no, we buy from a specific wool mill that in the Pennines, and we've had decades relationship with them. Previously, it was the father and now it's the son. So we've had a long, long-term relationship with them. Um, and yeah, they, they have their own flocks of these two different types of sheep, the Jacob and the Suffolk. And then they, yeah, they spin it and we buy it from there. And it's, you know, we, we want to buy English wool. There are people who will buy Antipodean, Australian wool, New Zealand wool. But to us, there's a history there. 
which dates back to the 16th century, I think it was, um, where Guernsey had to apply for a special license for English yarn, to use English yarn to support the knitting industry. And that's why to us, we, you know, it's also that element that we'd like to still keep maintain, that we will only buy 100% UK English wool. So um, we, we can't trace it back to the individual sheep, can't do that, but we can trace it back to this one mill that we've been using for decades. And that, yeah. It's a lot better than most. And I do see there is a movement now towards making it tra traceable. Of course, that's really only practical if the quantities are super, super small. Yeah. But I'd like to know, Le Tricoteur, what, what does that actually, what does the name mean for us <laughs> French uh, natural speakers? So, um, I mean, it's quite a gruesome answer, I hate to say, but um, in Paris, where they would do the beheadings, there would be ladies sitting around knitting, watching the spectacle, but they also had a job to do, which was when the baskets of all the poor people who'd had their heads chopped off were full, their job was to drag them away and replace them with an empty basket, and in between beheadings, they would knit. And that apparently is where the trick dirt comes from, which I don't always make public knowledge, but I'm happy to share here. But mm. it apparently it also can mean the knitter, but that is where the original name comes from. And then a, someone else said there was a punk band in the 70s called the Tricketer, but that has no relevance. But, you know, probably named after those ladies, I'd imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where the story comes from. That's where the name comes from. So it was started by your cousin. How did you get involved? So I didn't actually realise my cousin had started it until I told my parents that um, I'd kind of come up with this idea of buying this business in Guernsey. So... You know, my background is marketing and I spent years working with all kinds of brands and I got really super fed up of basically making up stories to authenticate their product. And I left in a bit of a huff and thought, I can't do this anymore. It's just storytelling. It's just nonsense. I'm going to set up an agency that only focuses on supporting brands that bring an added value to the market. And I had ended up being a bit of a specialist in bringing brands from abroad, cross-border kind of launches. So from Asia to the UK or UK to Asia. And um, I, the first brand that I approached to do their communications for, if they just chose to go international, was a heritage brand of sandals from America called Saltwater Sandals. And they were totally delighted with my passion and enthusiasm, but they said they had absolutely no interest in running the sales for it. And did I want to do it all? I could launch it, buy it, sell it, do what I want in the UK. So I started with them in the UK. And now, you know, we sell to over 40 countries, or may, might even be over 50 now, in the majority territory outside of America. And we did a photo shoot in Guernsey because I wanted to shoot the sandals in a typical British holiday where it's ever so slightly windy and overcast and a bit cold and we needed <laughs> to borrow some jumpers. So I thought, well, I have got to go to Le Tricoteur because I am originally from Guernsey and I know Le Tricoteur is making the absolute gold standard Guernseys. And I went in and we borrowed a few for the photo shoot. And later that summer, we decided to come back with my kids and my husband to see Guernsey and it was their first time. So, well, first time in memory, they came as little babies. And 
Maya said to my husband, well, you have to have a literature because you've married a Guernsey girl, you have to have a Guernsey. So we cycled along the coast road, bought him a Guernsey and um, we bought the kids some beanies because they were little. And I just thought, I'm not wasting, you know. Um, you could have just sized a, up. I could have. I could have. And they could have gone around with them like around their knees. But I could, you know, I, I just, they were still a little bit too young and they probably would have complained because it felt a bit scratchiness. So they had a couple of beanies and, you know, I posted the pictures like you do on Instagram and all my my inbox went absolutely mad. Can you get me a beanie? Can you get me a Guernsey? Oh, my gosh. They're so wonderful. I love how traditional they are. La, 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 la. So I went back to the shop to buy, a, you know, basically a big bag of beanies. And I got talking to Neil and, and the, you know, he's he's an elderly chap. And I kind of said to him, what's your plan? And he said, oh, I'll probably just lock up and leave. You know, when the time comes, and I was like, you can't lock up and leave. This is the trick of turn. Like, so I said, you know, would you consider selling it? He said, well, I suppose so. So we started talking in 2018, and it was all very relaxed. Just by, I mean, he doesn't, he wasn't, he was using email a bit, but a lot of it was just by telephone, and we just kind of like catch up every few months. And then he had a business partner, and his business partner unfortunately got very ill, and was just like, we got. We've got to close the business, and Neil was like, "No, I'll be talking to this lady. You know, she's interested in buying it." So I had to quickly buy it, and that is how I. I mean, it was it wasn't planned. It wasn't like I was scouting around for a business of my own. It was all down to the fact that, you know, I couldn't fathom the idea of this really well recognised manufacturer of these iconic pieces of clothing that we've all grown up with on this island and that other people love and adore and it's been proven. I mean we have good sales to America, we have great sales to Australia and New Zealand and then obviously the, the Japanese market but you know Britain is our number one market. We sell a lot just within the UK and I just couldn't bear the thought of it just disappearing. I'd always known about the brand and so when I told my parents oh you know I'm buying the Tricoteur they both laughed and said your cousin set that business up in the 1960s. And I was like, what? But he was a much older cousin, so I hadn't really socialised with him at all. But he had sold the business on and he'd gone round the house. He'd gone to a big investment firm at one point and then it'd come back and Neil was, had been, was the general manager and he had bought it. So it kind of stayed within the same group of people for quite a few years before I came along. And then my parents had met at my cousin's 21st birthday. That's how my parents got together, was at this Robert McDougall's 21st birthday who had set up Blue years back in the day. So it's kind of lovely. I mean, it's not kind of, it really is lovely that it's come back into the family, but it, that was not known at the time. Um, but I have caught up with Robert since and gone round there and picked his brains and asked him lots about what it was like back in the day and, would he do things differently? And it's been fantastic to be able to do that. That's for sure. So yeah, that's that's how it became mine. And um, you know, we've done a new website and we're on social media now. And none of that was being done before. And and it's really interesting looking at the demographic of people who visit our website or write to us. And it's it is the whole spectrum. I mean, we have you know 20 people in their 20s at university wanting to invest in one really decent piece of kit and they do really care about 
where things have come from, what they're made from. Is it, you know, they want it to be fair trade. They want it to be ecologically positive. And then we have, you know, people in their 80s who they're onto their fifth or sixth Guernsey or they're sending them back to be mended because we do offer a mending service as well. If we've knitted it, we can re-knit it because of the way that we manufacture. So we've had people come in who've inherited one from their grandparents and they need the neck redoing or they've had it for a long time, especially if they've been used as work kit or get, you know, have to mend a few holes here and there for people. Um, So, I mean, but we are getting a younger audience and, you know, they are an investment for someone who's maybe not even earning yet. So we get a lot of them gifted as 21st birthday presents or 18th birthday presents or Christmas presents, especially for the younger, the younger crowd. Um, but, you know, people swear by them. They don't pill. They don't, you know, if you wear something, they don't rub. They still say completely smooth woven. You know, they are fully fashioned. So each piece is knitted by increasing or decreasing the number of stitches and they have a selvage edge, which means that we don't, it's not a cut and sew piece. We don't make an enormous piece of cloth and then chop out the shapes and sew them together. Each front, each back, each sleeve, each gusset, you know, they're all made individually and then we hand link them with wool. So they're not overlocked with like a polyester thread or anything. They're 100% wool. And people like that because it means that if you do happen to pull it or like snag it, it can be re-knitted or it can be mended. It doesn't all fall apart, um, which, again, you know, I'm super proud that we still make them that way, the same way they've always been made. Um, yeah, so they're great. You mentioned the young people are sort of asking more eco-minded questions about ethical production, fair trade. Uh, probably the environmental footprint of it and what do you think about that are you sort of slow fashion minded or are you just doing things in a proper way as you've always done I think by default they are slow fashion it's not something that I've introduced into the manufacturing process to make them you know they do take five weeks to make because they have to go through each stages of the manufacturing they have they get you know probably the one thing that I might change at some point is they do travel, I mean, the island's small, but they do travel around the island quite a bit between houses and places and they get pressed and then they go to this person, then they go to QC, then they go to that person's house. We mend in the end. So like when when we've linked them all together and they're the thread, little bits of thread, instead of cutting them off, we mend them back into the seams. Um, and one person will do that and then another person will QC. A lot of it happens in our factory. I mean, I call it a factory. It's a very small portion of a very small industrial estate. Um, it used to be the old fish factory, actually, which is interesting. So there you go, there's your gutting bit about <laughs> gutting fish. We actually make them in the building, which used to process all the fish on the island. And it's next to the um, pub. Yeah, <laughs> quite near a pub. Um, but yeah, it's not something that we consciously have introduced. They just happen to be a labour of love and they happen to have lots of different people work on them. Um, you know, people can come and see them being made. If you visit us in Guernsey and you come to see our premises, you can see them in action being knitted, being linked, being QC'd, being mended in. You can see all the colours, you can see the boxes of yarn. 
um, you know, it's all there. So you can actually, you know, I don't have to whip out a certificate to prove anything. It's all right there in front of you. And we're very, you know, we have a shop right there in the factory. We love people to come and visit us and they get a real kick out of seeing it all being done right before their eyes. I'd like to develop that a little bit more because we had some, one of our shops came to visit us. They've been, I know I've mentioned them before, but they're just the perfect type of stockist for us called you know labour and weight in London and they'd never been to the Channel Islands and they'd been buying from us for 23 years and they said right no we are going to come and visit you and so I persuaded them to come over in a week where we have this massive agricultural fair that if you're local you know all about it but they don't necessarily call the West show where you know people show off their handicrafts and their baking and their flower arranging and they show off their sheep and they show off their prized cow and their pig and we're literally around the corner from this big agricultural festival so come in that week have the whole experience and um they came in and they they saw it all and and they really didn't realize how much care and attention goes and how many people work on each garment and um so i've kind of gone a bit off piste but um they only really, they, they, you know, they only really ever in that shop. They only stock the very best of each category that they sell, and they look to other ones. They have, you know, sometimes commercially you have to look at around and what's going on, but they just know that ours are the real deal, and they are willing to invest in in having that that type of product in their shop. So. Yeah. Tickle their boxes. I, I was in one of the London shops just uh, four weeks ago, I think, uh, right next door to Dashing Tweeds, uh, just around the corner of Chiltern oh. Street. And uh, yes, I, I, don't know if they, I don't know if they still have the the shop in Shoreditch. Yeah, they do. There. Yeah, that's a bigger one. That was their first. Well, they had another one before that, but that's with the the Red Church Street one with all the beautiful green tiles. That's the one. Outside. I remember. Yeah, yeah, that's Red Church, and then they've got this new. Marylebone store which must have been the one you went to yeah. which is the first time when I went and I had a meeting with them I that's the first time I'd ever met them both mm. yeah, um, I was really at... nice doing business with people who recognize the craftsmanship and the dedication to making them the right way and not cutting corners I suppose we just don't cut corners and I wouldn't be allowed to with my staff you know they've all built their entire life around working and making Guernseys and yeah, they, they would not, they wouldn't be into cutting corners and, and it, there'd be no reason to, because you'd, you'd sacrifice some of the quality if you did that. I, I was going to sort of slip in a little joke there. You don't cut corners, but you strengthen <laughs> them and gusset them instead. <laughs> Darn them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, because I don't know how to do any of that. I need to really do need to learn to knit. I'm feeling quite, yeah, quite embarrassed about the fact I don't actually know how to knit, but. We'll get there. Hmm. We'll so get there. Your, your background was marketing before this, and there you were marketing all sorts of stuff you didn't really believe in with stories you had to make up. How does it feel to be actually marketing something that is good with an actual true story, which doesn't It's an need... absolute <laughs> delight. So this is my first podcast because – Generally, I don't like talking about myself, but I am absolutely delighted to talk about the products I work with, which have so many stories about the materials they're made from, you know, how the designs came about, the history, 
Um, and, and the products do exactly what they say they're going to do as well. Like they hit all three things. You've got a product that's fantastic, that is, has longevity, that isn't, you know, lasts forever and ever. You probably, I mean, so this is the interesting thing. I worked in marketing where you sell more, more, more. And I've ended up working for two brands and two products where you probably only need one in your entire life. But once someone experiences the quality and how functional they are, they often want another one. Um, you know, I have a joke with a girl on the island where, so when I bought the business, it was early 2020, February the 7th, 2020, just before the whole world imploded. And I was planning on coming back, shoot, doing, you know, all these lovely new photographs, new website, everything. And I had to end up directing a photo shoot I was living on the other side of the world at the time and I would be, you know, I was up at 2 a.m. directing a photo shoot on the island because the whole island went into lockdown. So we had to source all our models, stylist, photographer on the island. I couldn't use any of my contacts that I'd had from my marketing world back in the day. And so I ended up sourcing a really lovely lifestyle wedding photographer and he was like I've never done anything like this before I'll give it a go and I'm like that's what I want I just want people to give it a go and I said and you've got to help me cast this as well because we can't bring any models and actually I didn't really want any fashion models I said let's just use local people and lo and then he was like well I know a few people and you know there was even you know at one point he sent me this surreptitious picture of a guy that he'd taken on the high street saying do you reckon He's good. He, he, you know, do you reckon he'd model? And I was like, run after him, run down the high street. After him, <laughs> we are because we were so limited by availability because everyone was under lockdown. So we had to use it all local talent on the island, which actually has turned out to be brilliant. And from now on, I will only ever shoot using local models and um, using this particular photographer. He's been brilliant. And one of the models who shot that first campaign she had never worn a Le Tricoteur Guernsey because she was young. I mean, she must have been about 18 or something at the time, 17, 18. She hadn't had one. And she is now absolutely falling in love with them. And, you know, I catch her buying another one. I'm like, Karis, you don't need any more Guernseys. And she's like, I just can't stop. I love them. They're so great. And they're perfect for life on the island. And she's a local girl. I think she's in her 20s now. And every time I see her, she's got a different one on now. So that's absolutely brilliant. So... They kind of sell themselves. I don't have to make up stories. You know, people either buy them because they're from Guernsey or they buy them because they are really interested in historical knitwear or they buy them because they're really functional or they buy them because they've seen someone else wear them and they're influenced by them and they like the idea of it. Or, you know, they've inherited one and, and it's the wrong size or someone, you know, they they just they don't really need the hard sell and that is a dream to me because I'm not I, I don't have to it's not lying it's not peddling you know oh the latest triple distilled vodka and it's like there's 30 hundred other triple distilled vodkas on the market like there really is only one Guernsey and I'm so proud that Le Tricoteur still makes them the same way they've always made them and they inherited the design when the company started and we still sell if you want to hand knit one we've got the patterns I think we sell them for like a pound like you can try and knit one we often have people buy a pattern and six months in they're like I can't do it I'm just <laughs> going to buy one it's just 
taking forever and it's so difficult so you know it's we we share things like that and we're not precious if you want to buy the design you can buy the design and you know if, if you're a certain skill at knitting you know we, we invite people to come in they they do have to live on the island i'm not going to be sending bags of knitting off around the world to like be finished they do have to live but on the island if you want to knit for us but we're very flexible we just, just want to keep it going i was just thinking you should do a sort of kit for very keen home knitters where you sell them the pattern uh, the knitting needles and a completed jumper and they just have to do that last bit <laughs> no, they don't have to do, actually do anything but they oh, okay the complete the, the completed jumper they have the pattern they have the knitting needles look <laughs> that's a bit like buying a ready meal and pretending that you've spent hours in the kitchen cooking it yeah. You have guests over, yeah. I, I, like I mean, the, we do. I, I like the way you uh, you'd actually use the local resources to promote, and I think sort of flying over some flash photographer and a lot of models from London would have really wouldn't broken work. things. No, it wouldn't work, and you know, and that kind of came about because of happenstance. Um, I mean, I might have brought a photographer that I'd always worked with, who's who did the photo shoot which started it all you know she came over and she did the photo and she's french as well and when she came to guernsey you know she's looking at all these guernsey french you know street signs and she just couldn't wrap her head around it because it's a different type of french it's a guernsey patois and she's like it's right but it's not right i don't understand like where is this language from so um that's been that was quite interesting when she came over but no i i work with this one photographer called Etienne. He was also a Lene, but we've discovered we are different branches of the, of the family. So we're both Lene's and um, and he did some, he's done some fantastic photography for us. And he's really, you know, he's really embraced that I like it all to be slightly, oh, I want it to be completely natural. So he, he always laughs sometimes at the shots that I choose, like, you know, where the hair's blown across the girl's face, you can't really see what her face is, but you know, that's real. You know, you're on the cliffs of Guernsey and it's, blowing a gale you know you can't take a pretty pretty picture i'd rather it was just as it is and the the chap who's on the side of our van we have two vans now the chap on the side of our van is also a local guernsey guy but he is actually a model but it turns out that he's the son of our original model and i didn't know that either so i got sent his picture saying there's this guy he's beautiful you should get him in a guernsey and i was like well yeah he's fantastic looking and so then I said to him, look, you know, we'd like, would you do this with us? And um, he said, oh, I absolutely would love to, because it means I'm going to knock my dad off the pedestal of being the model for the tricketer for the past 40 years. And I was like, you're kidding me. So George is on one van and his dad's on the other van. And um, so that was another lovely little twist. Is, is there but, a know, grandson the on the way so that this may continue? No, no, but there is. <laughs> A girl. So in, his dad is modelling with a lady, and I'm trying to find her granddaughter. Apparently, she has a granddaughter who's about the right age who could do, you know, late teens. So maybe I'll, I'll do a, a, a little campaign with her to pass the baton down. So yeah, that 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 was another funny little thing to happen with this brand. Like everything just it's all just really lovely working on this island. Lovely working with. Um, all these people who are passionate about Guernseys. And, you know, I've got, I've had a lot of advice from the National Trust here. There's a wonderful lady who wrote a little book about the history of the Guernsey and she's corrected me a few times because, you know, I, 
I cannot pretend to say that I'm an absolute specialist in every element of the history of it, but I've learned a lot, a lot. And, um, you know, every now and then she'll say, it's not quite right, Rachel. This is what happened. So I'll change it. Called, a lady called Caro Drake. And she runs, she, I think they, they found an old Victorian sweet shop in town and they kept it exactly as it was. It's just near Victor Hugo's house. So you can do Victor Hugo's house and then you can go down the street and you can see this traditional Victorian street sweet shop. And she's very involved with making sure that everything is 100% authentic. So there's lots of people who are here to help me and support me and correct me when I'm wrong. Very politely correct me when I'm wrong. <laughs> I was just thinking but, she sounds um, like the life of the party. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, she's, at, she's actually in this as well. So Let she, me just correct you. Yeah, no, it's good. I want I want to make sure that it's one hundred percent correct. I, no, no spiel here. So yeah, it's been brilliant on both brands, both the brands that I work with. I mean, it's they're more than brands because they're they're both family owned businesses, and they do what they do. And they don't try and do anything else differently. They just make the very best of what they make, and they're not interested in tweaking it too much or you know, diffusion line this or making that. I mean, one thing we are going to do, but nearly everything I'm doing is looking back through the archives, seeing what we've done before that I think is relevant today. And I've mentioned before that people find the worsted wool a little bit itchy and we are trialing cotton now because we used to make cotton and they're fantastic for, <laughs> I mean, maybe not even this week, how hot it is this week, but in summer, you might not wear your Guernsey when it's really hot. I mean, in Guernsey on the island, you might do it after the sun's gone down. But a lot of people also don't like that itchiness, but they really like to have a Guernsey. So we have been trialing cotton um, and we've been really specific about what type of cotton. It's got knit in the way that the wool does. It's got to have that heavyweight feel to it. It's got a wash well, it's, you know, we've been doing washing and wearing trials and making sure that um, it doesn't shrink too much. And so that that is one little development, which is is different. But we must get asked, I don't know, 20, 30 times a week. Do, don't you make cotton anymore? Please, can you make cotton? So we thought, well, let's look into it then. So I think that will be exciting. I'd have suggested a sort of cheeky little cashmere. Well, that might come next, and we'll call it the softy range for the softies. You what can't is? take the worst of all. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be, I think it would be beautiful because it would, yeah, it would knit beautifully because it has that lovely tight weave. Um, it'd be blimming hot, though, I think. It'd be even warmer than worsted wool. I personally find cashmere too hot. I can't wear it, but I think it would be lovely. But I can't imagine how much it would cost if you're putting a kilo and a bit of cashmere into it. We probably wouldn't need that much, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have a think, Nick. If we make one, I'll send you one. You could be our trial wearer. Yeah, I'll give the softy sweater wearer as a face. Thanks <laughs> a lot. So where do you think things will go? Um, the, you know, the, the thing is, our machines are fantastic, but they don't make them anymore. Our, our original flatbed knitting machines they don't manufacture those machines anymore when pieces break we have to kind of jimmy fix it or we have to kind of get a local iron forger to forge us a 
actually iron forge it with flame, like a bolt that snapped. That's what we had to do last time. So there is a concern there. But if we can carry on doing that or we can buy parts from old machines, then the machines will carry on. But we, you know, we did buy a secondhand modern machine. Um, we spent seven months perfecting and, and kind of mucking it up a bit to make it knit like our old machines. Because I am worried that if the machines go, we can't make them that way anymore. So we had to find an alternative. And then the other thing is like, if we can't keep teaching knitting or recruiting new knitters, eventually our production of that premium, what we call the premium range will deplete. But I think we'll probably always have knitters on the island. I mean, we are still getting generations of new knitters coming through because it's such a part of this island to know how to knit that your grandmother or your mother will teach you to knit. And so there are lots of young people who do knit. It's just persuading them to knit for us. So I guess the future is at some point we will only be able to offer even a smaller number of the actual hand finished, hand knitted ones. But I still think we'll be able to knit Guernseys on the island. We'll still be able to link them. We'll still be using the original patterns. If we could produce our own wool on the island, that would be fantastic. If we had to move production anywhere off island, I would prefer for it to go to France than anywhere else. Um, but I, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Um, and, you know, I'd want to make sure that we retain as much as, the, the, you know, as much as we can. Um, but yeah, that, that's my concern. And, and this island's really expensive to live on. You know, I know everyone's struggling a bit, but this island has always been expensive to live on. And a lot of the agriculture is gone now. So we're not necessarily growing our own food anymore. A lot of it's imported, which is a real shame. But um, I do think we'll still be able to keep going in 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 a way, but we might have to just think a little bit outside the box. But I can't see that happening. Hopefully, you know, it's not going to be, it's going to be at least a decade or more. We can keep going the way we are now. And, um, and if I can get the states of Guernsey involved in teaching knitting in schools, which it also used to be, it's a bit like the Welsh teaching the Welsh language again. Like we should get people knitting again. We should get people really caring about maintaining those old crafts or else, you know, it would be a bit of a travesty. But um, so far, so good. That does seem to be a common concern, getting young people into the industry. Uh, I remember talking to Patrick Grant about uh, recruiting for his factory and others where, I mean, one part of it is, can can you make a living working? Um, and I think another aspect is, is it a desirable career uh, when mm. you're sort of weighing up, start knitting or become a YouTube influencer? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think... With the linkers, which is when they when they put the pieces together on the machines, it takes about six weeks to train someone up. But what is quite good is we can be quite flexible with hours. So we have had younger people who've had kids and they've got the school hours so they can come and learn between like nine and three. They don't have to be in an office from nine until five. And, you know, they haven't they don't need to have wraparound care for their kids. So there is an element of flexibility there, which is appealing 
which is how we've managed to recruit slightly younger people than the ones. I mean, some of the ladies who've been on those income machines started as what we used to call schoolies. So they'd come on a Saturday or they come after school and they'd do the mending in or they'd do the QC. And then they got promoted or they went to school and they got married and they had kids and then they ca- and they carried on doing work from home. And then they realised, oh, well, now my kids are at school. What do I do now? Well, I know Le Trucata. I've got a relationship with Le Trucata. You know, I'll become a linker. And then, you know, that's a different pay grade again. So, but, it, it, but it's just, you know, I do pay a living wage, but I certainly don't pay the salaries that the banking um, companies can on this island. And that's a bit of a shame because I can't compete with, you know, Credit Suisse. You know, I, I have to find those people who don't just want the money, do want to support local industry, have got an emot- emotional, in, you know, relationship with the with Le Tricoteur, but then, you know, they have to live as well. And, you know, there's a lot of issues on this island to do with when you want to get your own house and move out of home, not enough houses on the island for for the people that are here but you know there are people who are very attached to the island and they are younger people who will not not all of them are going to move away but it, it you know it is a bit of a concern um you know a lot of people kind of question my sanity buying this old knitting company um <laughs> But I'm passionate about. I'm super passionate about heritage brands. I'm super passionate about local crafts. I'm super passionate about stuff that adds value. I'm, you know, I'm so weary of of a lot of um, just yeah. Well, I mean, we're all weary of fast fashion. We don't need to talk about that. But you know, we just we don't need as much stuff. We just need a few things in life that work and don't fall apart and then we're sorted and you know when I'm when we when we've moved here I made a point of not buying lots of new furniture and I just bought everything nearly everything in our house is second hand and I'm so happy about it I absolutely love the fact that I'm looking at a sideboard here that's from the 1960s and it's probably got stories behind it and I opened drawers and bought some chest of drawers and there's like old newspapers in there from that had lined the drawers from the 1970s and you know they're just we don't need new stuff all the time and we just need stuff that works and that goes on and on and on and and I'm kind of that's why I bought it um not not to like make suddenly make a hundred thousand a year and make them in Latvia or anywhere else just keep it going for as long as I can really mentioned that people send in their old sweaters for repair have you had any really really old ones or any really good stories we have had a couple um there was one that came in and actually they brought it in in person because it'd been in storage for so long and actually we decided that we couldn't mend it we were too worried that if we tried to mend it um it might actually disintegrate it was a really really old and it wasn't made by literature it was a hand knitted one and we kind of persuaded the family that it's better just to keep it as it is because even wearing it could have destroyed it was hundreds of years old that was pretty fantastic to see that um we most of them it's sentimental it'll be that one of their grandparents has died and 
and they've inherited one of their garments. We've had people, you know, ask us if we can make, you know, stuffed toys out of an old Guernsey that's beyond repair, but we, you know, we can't do that. But there are companies that do that, which is lovely. So we've seen some people sent off some older Tricketer Guernseys and they've made teddies out of them, used them as panels to, you know, that's pretty lovely. But no, I haven't had anything of his huge historical significance or discovery. It's mostly sentimental, but people are so delighted to be able to wear it again once we've, you know, re-knitted the neck or the cuff or anything. They still, they, they just keep passing them down. We had a lady come in with three daughters, all grown up, all with their own kids. And she said between them all, they had something like 27 Guernseys. They were calling them. We were trying to come up with what is the collective name for a Guernsey? Is it a flight of Guernseys? Is it a fleet of Guernseys? I think and, it's a uh, gaggle. A gaggle of Guernseys, <laughs> you know. So, so they were showing me pictures of, of them all wearing them through the years. And she'd come in and the mum had said, well, because I've passed them all down, I want a new one. So the very matriarch at the very top came in and brought bought herself a brand new Guernsey and she bought it in the new kind of trapeze fit the shorter cropped wide one and I mean she looked absolutely fantastic in it and her daughters all bought a beanie hat and our you know our beanies came about by chance they were originally made out of cuffs so it's exactly the same stocking stitch on the cuffs as it is on our beanies and um, I think they had a few like sleeves that hadn't worked and so they chopped off the cuffs they hemmed it up they sewed up the top and it made a hat and so we sell beanies in the shop too, which originally had started off as like the cuffs of sleeves. And then on top of that, we had a local postman who used to come in and do the round to deliver and collect our mail called Dobbo. And he said, the thing is, I love my beanie that I've got from you, but I can't hear the traffic. Can you make me one that's not as long? It's a little bit lighter, not as long. So we made him a shorter beanie with just a single like turnover, which of course, everybody's wearing now like trawlerman hats or night watchman hats they get called that kind of shape yeah. but we call ours dobbos after our postman <laughs> because he was the one who asked us to make and i mean that was before my time and i and you know i said we've definitely got to make some more of those and they've been really popular with kids too so we kind of that's that's as far as we go we've got like a couple of hats we make scarves too um and our guernseys but you know, cotton will be next, will be our next development. But other than that, I'm not sure. We, we, we're looking around. We've had a few people make us some bits and pieces out of the remnants, which would be nice. I'd like to make some more cushion covers or hot water bottle covers. Um, like, you know, we, we had someone come in and show us a design, which is absolutely lovely, but we couldn't scale it. So I'd like to scale it, which had made us a beautiful tote bag out of her old Guernsey with a beautiful leather strap. So... We'll probably try and do something like that. So we're using up all the bits. So you know the the scraps, the you know the hats, the scarves, and then making them. And so we're using up every single last bit, which would be great. I was just thinking that if they hadn't made the beanies, would Rachel still have wandered in in two thousand, wanting a bag of beanies, and wandered out again with the entire factory? <laughs> could history I don't know. still have happened? I know. I mean, interestingly, so you don't need to actually wash Guernseys that much or any any 100% wool garment. You don't actually need to wash it that much. 
And my husband's, which was bought in 2018, was five years on. I think he's washed it once in all of that time. Gosh. And I mean, that's pretty amazing because <clears throat> wool just doesn't, it doesn't pick up body odors or cooking odors or anything like that. And we have people asking us all the time, you know, how do I wash it? And I need to wash it. I said, you actually don't need to wash it. And you don't want to wash it because the more you wash it, the more you wash out the lanolin and the lanolin has this antimicrobial property, which means that, you know, you, they just don't smell. And if you want to refresh it, chuck it over a hedge for half an hour, you know, hang it outside, air it, but don't, you don't need to wash them that frequently. And if you do, you certainly don't put um, softener in the, the final rinse okay. just kind of we call it you agitate it in water with a bit of wool soap rinse it clear and then dry it flat never ever hang it on a hanger that would be crazy because it would misshape because they're so heavy i'm curious now that you've brought your teenage children to the island and introduced them to um, the gansies what do they make of them i mean it could be the mother's influence but they absolutely love them they love them like they wear them with pride very happy to be seen in a guernsey i mean i remember when i got bought my first one i thought i was like oh it's so untrendy at the time but i guess maybe th things have changed and of course they've got access to social media too they're super proud to be part of this kind of dynasty family dynasty of making these traditional woolen garments they're really proud to be related to this island um yeah, I mean, my daughter keeps asking for more, but she's not fully grown yet. So I'm like, wait another couple of years before we invest in another one. Um, but my son, yeah, he wears a size 44, which is our most popular size. And interestingly, actually, there is a story about Charlie in that he, we went shopping in Camden Market in London and we went into one of these secondhand vintage shops and he, he was like, mum, come and look at this. And he'd found a traditional Le Tricoteur in a colour that I had been asking the mill if they could reproduce it. And they were like, you know, we just can't go off photos. You've got to find us a sample. And here was an entire Le Tricoteur Guernsey in this heritage colour, which we call Breton Rouge, which is that Brittany red that is a lot of fishermen smocks are made from out of that kind of brick red. And so we, we bought this Guernsey from the secondhand shop literally we sent it off to the wall mill they color matched it and now we've reintroduced that color into our collection and charlie's got the original guernsey and he's so pleased and happy to have been part of that process it's pretty cool so yeah that's lovely so yeah he kind of he solved the problem of trying to find that absolute match because he found the original deal so that was pretty cool yeah do you get anyone asking for vegan wool no not yet don't mention it i'm sure they'll start now oh, I hope I didn't <laughs> jinx it <laughs> i mean you know no we we haven't you know that we um the the yarn mill that rears the sheep they're very careful about all their animal i think you call it animal husbandry you know they all the sheep are like 100 a-okay they don't do this thing. I think they call it, is it mulesing? It sounds hideous. That's an Australian they don't, they're not, they're thing, I Yeah, I mean, but no, I don't, I mean, no, we haven't been asked for vegan wool. Mm. Maybe they can have cotton. When we introduce the cotton, they can have a cotton one. Mm. 
It was a daft question, okay. really, but I, I thought you'd probably had someone ask about it. Not yet, not yet. We do with, you know, with the sandals, I get asked all the time about vegan. But again, with the sandals, the leather sandals are water-resistant leather, and they came about because the original scrap leather was used for making military boots. And he realised that they, had, they treat the, the leather in a certain way so that when you march through mud, and they get them soaking wet. They don't crack or stretch out of shape. And he used the scrap leather to make his daughter the first pair of leather sandals, but they are leather. And we get asked all the time for a vegan equivalent. And we have looked, we've looked at cactus, we've looked at apple, we've looked at mushroom, we've looked at pineapple, we've looked at all these other leather equivalents. But the one USP about saltwater sandals is you can get them soaking wet and they don't stretch or crack or break or what have you. And none of these vegan equivalents, because we won't look at plastic for obvious reasons. I just refuse. Well, I'm not going to make you a vegan. virtually plastic, all of them, aren't they? Just... Yeah. So, you know, we've tried to look at these other vegetable-based ones and we just haven't found a leather that's a equivalent leather that has the same quality. So we just can't make them yet because we don't want to really lose that USP. And I guess the same would be with a vegan wool, is would it still have the weatherproofing? Would it still have the rainproofing? I don't know. Yeah, it would be rubbish. It would be just like plastic fleece, polyester fleece. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be back to the <laughs> 80s again. Yeah. Now, is there anything we should have mentioned or anything you'd like to mention? Um, I suppose historically it's important to recognise the Guernsey in, in the wider context, in that, you know, there are stories abound that Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots both owned Guernsey knitwear. And apparently Mary Queen of Scots was supposed to have worn a pair of Guernsey stockings at her execution. Ooh. So we go back to execution again. And the knitters were but sitting also... around. <laughs> <laughs> Collecting. Oh, no, don't let's not talk about that. Yes, a lot of, again, uh, lots of gruesome history there. Yes. I know. Mm. I mean... Also, Sir Walter Raleigh was governor of Jersey and forged trade links with Newfoundland in the 17th century. So he took Guernsey sweaters out to Newfoundland. And Nelson also was the person who introduced them as a piece of naval clothing. So they have, I know we all know, well, I don't know if you know, but I know a cream submariner has been part of a naval uniform. But for years, we... Well, a Navy Guernsey was also part of naval clothing um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, was when Nelson got involved, but then for years after they were. And actually, we do supply them to our customs and excise. Our local customs and excise all have a Navy Guernsey as part of their uniform made by us with their kind of name here and their badge here. And so, you know, they, they, I think that's pretty interesting that they've been recognised by some pretty big people in history, um, and long may it continue. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> okay, Rachel, thanks so much for talking with me today. I think I talked a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, it's been lovely. So I'll just say bye-bye and... Um... Take care. Thank you. And that was all for this week's episode. 
subscribe in your app to automatically download next week's episode. You'll be alerted as soon as it's published. Links and uh, details about this week's show can be found in the show notes. Also, including a link to my new Patreon. So, for now, bye. Bye.